Bienvenue dans l'Alcove. Ce soir, on reçoit David Bensadoun. Welcome to the Alcove. Tonight, our guest is David Bensadoun. So David Bensadoun became the fourth generation of his family to work in the shoe business when he joined the Elder Group in 1996. A natural leader, David was appointed CEO of the Elder Group in April 2017. Before stepping into that role, David spent two decades working in almost every corner of the business, from operations to IT to buying. He's got the business chops to back up the impressive trajectory, tripling profits for the Collet Spring brand in a two-year period, opening 250 Aldo stores in just three years in the U.S., and leading multiple innovative in-store technology projects, improving the customer experience, and using the e-com platform to its full extent. A lover of geopolitics and a real history buff, David holds a bachelor's in geography and history from Queens and a master's of philosophy in land economics from Cambridge. David's also a husband, a father of three, an avid racer, and by all accounts, one of the most charismatic guys you'll meet. Spend an hour with him and there's no chance he won't teach you something you didn't know. David, we're so thrilled to be closing off the fourth season with you. Thanks for accepting our invitation and welcome to the Elko. Thank you. So, as we always do to loosen up our guests, I'm not sure you need it, but we'll do it anyways. We ask 20 speed round questions. So the goal is for you to answer with the first thing that comes to mind. Don't think about it too much. So, first question. If you're going to teach a college course, what would it be? History. What's one assumption people make about you that is dead wrong? That I'm a meathead. <laughs> On a scale of 1 to 10, how lucky are you? On 10. 10. Three favorite retail brands right now? Canadian Tire. <laughs> Walmart. Lululemon. What is one characteristic that you believe every leader should possess? Curiosity. The last text message you sent, and who was it to? What did it say? (laughs) (laughs) It said, uh, somebody asked me, did you check your voicemail? I said, how old are you? I don't check my voicemail. (laughs) That was it. That's all I said. That's great. Who was it to? Uh, An old friend. What is the best book you've read this year? The book I'm reading right now is really good. It's called Galula. It's about a it's about a uh, a French army officer who created the theory for counterinsurgency warfare that was used by Petraeus, which is the American general who led the Iraq war. So it's the background from the Algerian war, which anyway, it's very technical, but I think it's really good. Great. Name one of your role models. Winston Churchill. What is the most important factor you consider when hiring someone? Positive attitude, big smile, warm. What's the biggest risk you've taken in your personal life? Getting married. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of which, what does your wife like the most about you? Hugs, I think. What do your kids wish you did more of with them? Lego. (laughs) Have you ever taken on a job that you were not qualified for? No. What's your favorite quote? Nothing comes to mind, sorry. Memorable trip that you took? 
I rode a motorcycle from Cambridge to Cape Town, South Africa. Cambridge, England, like London, England. We to will Ca talk about to this trip. Cape Town, South Africa. That's hard okay. to beat. What's your favorite day of the week? Friday. <laughs> Who is a CEO that you look up to? None. Favorite meal? Amir. <laughs> no question about it. <laughs> what do you like most about being Canadian? Multiculturalism. Most difficult hire you ever made? CFO. And finally, your first aha moment when you became CEO of Aldo? Looking out over 1,400 people and realizing I was responsible for their well-being, for their their families' well-being, for their incomes. All right. That's it for the speed round. Let's talk about your childhood and growing up a little bit. So you were born in Montreal to two uh, immigrant parents. Mm -hmm. Your mother is Scottish. Your father is Moroccan. And Algerian. They, Algerian. Uh, born in Morocco, no? Two Algerian parents, yep. Okay. And those two parents basically chose Montreal as their home. It wasn't until you were about 15 years old that it became apparent that this Aldo shoe thing was going to actually be a thing. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up before Aldo became so central in your lives. So I was born in 1970, and uh, my dad started the business in 72, and he drove a Chevy Impala till I was 10. So, you know, we, we, we lived well, but we were definitely middle class, and... Um, he worked really hard. He wasn't home a lot. And I guess around 13, 14, 15, and that, like 82, 83, 84 is when I, when I, I guess I became conscious that the business my dad was running was, was working because our vacations were getting better and our, his car was getting nicer. And, and, uh, when I was 13, we moved into a, like a pretty nice house and, it was very strange, like trying to understand what was going on, you know, that that we were able to afford all these things. And I just remember <clears throat> being six, seven, and eight, and my dad saying uh, that he had to take a second mortgage on the house, and you know that we had to make choices as a family. And do you understand that at that age, though, what that really means? I think you understand it, like if you go to a school where some kids are going on a fancier vacation, and you. You know, I'd like to go to Disney World, and well, we can't this year because because I'm doing this and this with the business, and so it was it was more exciting than anything else. But it was a a feeling that I was part of a growth tra trajectory, you know, and and visiting him at the office, and and the the warehouse kept moving. Like every two years, the warehouse was getting bigger. The first warehouse was literally the size of this room, and I remember playing in it. And then the next warehouse had conveyors, which as a little kid was like really Most exciting. exciting and he put us in boxes and we would ride along on the conveyors. And then the next warehouse had not just conveyors with rollers, but actual rubber tracks that would bring you up and down. And my brother and I were always asking my dad if he had put in any new conveyors, you know, so that we could go play in the warehouse. And, and it just kept getting bigger and there were more and more people and when we would visit him during the day, there were more and more people. It just it was a feeling of nonstop growth. So it was something really positive in your life. Yeah, very positive. And so, as private as your your father is, we still kind of know what kind of man he is. You know, he's very business savvy. He's 
this great guy. He understands how to build a business. He's a bit of a hippie. But we never hear about your mom. Tell us a little bit about your mom. Well, it's nice of you to ask because it's a funny thing to be the son of Aldo Bensadun because it's almost like uh, immaculate conception. You know, you uh, <laughs> somehow don't have a mother and uh, nobody ever asks. And my mom is by far the biggest influence in my life. Um, you know, she's a... a an immigrant to Canada. She arrived when she was 19. She finished high school and took a, like a Commonwealth immigration program. She got a job as a secretary. Her father was an assistant butcher. He was not even the butcher. Her mother, his, her mother was an usher at a, like a movie theater. Mm -hmm. They were really poor. Like she had no hot water in her home, no heating, you know, in Scotland, it, it's pretty cold and damp. And I remember visiting my grandmother 30 years after my mom moved to Canada and my grandmother was still living in the same home and my brother and I joined the local gym just so we could have a hot shower. So she still, when we, and this is in the early 80s, she had no hot water and no heating in her home. Like, so my mom really uh, appreciated the life in Canada and, and um, she was just, she's an amazing woman. She's very kind. She's very uh, loving and, uh, Everything I know about empathy and curiosity comes from her. How did things change for you as a kid when your parents got divorced? I mean, to give my dad credit, the, he, he really did a great job making it as smooth as possible. So he bought a, a second home for my mom that was two blocks away. So my brother and I could actually walk between the two homes. And um, he always supported her and really tried to make it as... Uh, as smooth as possible, but there's no question it has a huge impact on you. And uh, I was 13 at the time; my little brother was 10, and I think I bore the brunt of it. And and I think it took maybe two, three years to really come to terms with it and to understand why my mom was so sad and you know the the way that she was dealing with it. <clears throat> but um, you know, today my mom is married to an incredible man, an Italian American. They've been married for 25 years, and they're very happy. Uh, they live here in, uh, in NDG, and uh, so I guess, you know, it's just part of life is to go through some of those challenges, but uh, it's not a great time in my life. I, I don't, I look back at it and have mixed feelings. I feel like I had a really wonderful childhood, and then my early teenage years were quite challenging. Okay. Speaking of your teenage years, you've had the chance to live all over the place, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, London, Cambridge. But you took a year off to snowboard in Whistler. And you also managed a Subway sandwich shop and worked as a nightclub bouncer. So I've known you for over 10 years, and I had no idea. I think that's yeah. amazing. What would you say was the most memorable time when you were at Whistler? You know, I moved to Whistler because I finished my bachelor's degree, and I knew I was going to go do a master's degree. I, I just want everyone to take a moment to picture him as a bouncer for a second. <laughs> <laughs> I was a really good bouncer. <laughs> so uh, Go on. <laughs> there was not a single fight the whole time that I was a bouncer. But uh, I, um, I, had, I had a chance to take a year off, and I was always worried about taking a year off because I always said, if I don't know what I'm going to do at the end of the year, I won't enjoy the year because I'll feel like I have to be searching for what I'm doing next. So when I got accepted to Cambridge, 
I wrote a letter asking for a one-year deferment. And when they said yes, it was like a gift. You know, you just have this year of total freedom and you know that you're going to a good program when you're done. So I, in my head, I thought, you know, I love snowboarding. I'm going to move to Whistler and I'm going to snowboard every day. And, and what I learned about myself is that I don't actually like snowboarding that much. <laughs> and so I was there and I was quite happy to go two or three times a week, but I really didn't need to go five or six times a week. And so I wanted to be busy. So I got a job uh, and I needed to pay my, my bills. So I got a job as a subway manager and I ran the if anyone's been to Whistler, it's next to the Misty Mountain Pizza. It's still there. And it's uh, actually the second highest volume subway in Canada when I was running it. And, uh, of course it was. And I, and, I had, and I had one trick to increase sales. I would, instead of baking all the cookies in the morning, I would bake 12 at a time. So there was always the smell, smell. of fresh baked cookies. And it was like, there's no way you're not going to sell a cookie if it just came out of the oven. So my uh, items per bill was through the roof. And I love ordering the inventory and figuring out how to increase the sales. And that was kind of one of the moments where I realized that I'd love to be in business. Yeah. And uh, it was a good experience also hiring staff because you can imagine a Whistler, like it's really an issue. And uh, you end up with like total potheads and, and, and Australians, basically. <laughs> That's the, your choice. And uh, so it was, it was a good challenge to motivate staff. And it's not a cool job, right? Like, there's a lot cooler jobs in Whistler, so it was a very good experience. Okay. Um, so, when you joined Aldo, finally, after Cambridge, you had other jobs. Your dad always said, you know, made it clear for everyone in the family that before joining the family business, you have to work elsewhere for at least five years. Three years. Three years? Yeah. Okay. Um, did you take those other jobs knowing that you wanted to end up at Aldo and that when you would go there, you would stay there for a super long time? Or was it kind of like, well, I'll go try it out? So so growing up, I never worked in the stores. I never really worked in the warehouse. Um, my dad never pushed us to work in the company. And honestly, when I finished university, I was going to work in real estate development. And I was sure that that's what I would do. Okay. And I went to work for uh, IntraWest, which is the company that developed Tremblant. And I really didn't enjoy working for them. I, I didn't like their values. I didn't like what was going on. And um, after a year and a half, I was questioning whether I wanted to stay. And there was a, a very important project going on at the company. And my dad said, why don't you come and just join the project six, nine months, see if you like it, and then you can decide. And so I did, and I, I never left. How long have you been there now? 21 years. Okay. And it, it honestly feels like... 10. You know, really? Oh, yeah. It's gone by so fast. It's crazy. So you said something really interesting to me when we met. You talked about the fact that you don't actually have a passion for the product. You don't really care about footwear. And somehow you've been working in this. No, that, that's I mean, he strong. cares, but it's not like a passion of yours, right? Yeah, so when everyone was saying that, that the thing they have in common with me is that they love shoes, <laughs> I, feel, I feel bad and and this is my uh, this is my coming out moment. So the 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 big the big guilt that I have as the CEO of Aldo is that I really love our staff and I really love our customers, and uh, I've come to I've come to understand shoes, but I don't wake up in the morning wondering what style sold yesterday in the stores, and I, I'm not 
going through magazines looking at shoes. But I will tell you that when I'm in a public place, I do look at what everyone's wearing, but I'm looking at it from like a consumer behavior point of view, like, oh, this girl's wearing a, gray, a green jacket and what shoes is she? Like I'm trying to put it together from an analytical point of view, but I'm not, oh my God, the wedge on that shoe is unbelievable. Like I, I don't, it's just not, it's not in me and, 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 and it won't be. But thankfully, we have about a, 200 people at the office who are really good at products. So I think I'll be okay. And that, that never, that was never an issue for you where you thought maybe I should be doing something. You have big passions in your life yeah. and maybe you should focus on something else. I, it do, I, I have thought about it and uh, I have friends who've gone to work in their passion and what they've said is that it ruins the passion, you know, and like I have friends who work in what used to be their hobby and they don't do the hobby anymore. And I think, you know, I think there's more to business than the product we sell. I think it's really about the people. And, and I'm not just saying that because I'm not a product person. I'm saying it because I really believe that Aldo Group is successful and will be successful because of people. You know, the, the trends will come and go. We, we just have to have the right people and treat them well. And so I, I don't know. I, uh, I've come to terms with having great hobbies outside of work. And, you know, once you have a family, that's your main hobby. So that's really the focus. So you were appointed CEO of Aldo in 2017. So you were 46 years old, basically, when that yeah. happened. Um, you had been there for a long time. When you got that role, were you intimidated by the enormity of the job, or were you like, oh, finally, like it's been way too long? I was not intimidated <laughs> by the job. I, uh, but I wouldn't say it's been too long. I think it was about the right time. I think ideally it would have happened maybe two or three years earlier. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's fine. The way, the way it worked out was fine. And I feel really privileged to have the role now. And I find it to be very challenging. Like, it is, everyone always says, it's one thing to be the president of a business unit or the leader of a business unit. It's something else entirely to be the CEO. It really is a pressure cooker. It's, uh, the, the hardest thing has actually been to adapt my time management and adapt my work-life balance and try to find something that works for my family and for me and for the business. So it's funny, whenever you read about successful CEO or entrepreneurs, people often talk about the morning routine as being like the thing that will set you apart from mm -hmm. being successful and others know. So I told people that, you know, we were doing this with you. The question that came back the most often was, what is his morning routine? So tell us what your morning routine is. Uh, it's going to sound terrible, but uh, I wake up at 4.30 or 5 a.m. and I do an hour to an hour and a half of emails. At 6 a.m. I have a shower and I just, basically I have the shower late because I want to wait for my kids to wake up and I, I try to just see them in the morning, but the truth is a lot of mornings I don't. I, I leave the house before they're awake. Mm -hmm. I get to my desk at 7 Two days a week, I go to the gym and work out, and then I'm at my desk at 8. But three days a week, I'm at my desk at 7. And then I work for two hours at my desk, and then I have my meetings from 9 to 5. And when I say 9 to 5, I mean lunch is working, like there's not one minute that's a break. And then at 5, the meetings end, unless there's an emergency. 5 to 6, I do emails, and then I drive home at 6, have dinner with my kids, spend a bit of time 
with them. Then I do another hour of emails, and then I have an hour with my wife before I fall asleep. And that's basically what I do every every day. And then on the weekends, I spend at least six or seven hours uh, working. And um, and the truth is, I love it. The truth is, I I feel like I'm solving problems. I feel like I'm helping my team to succeed. Uh, it's very rare that I'm reading an email like, oh my God, I can't believe I have to deal with this. You know, in general, I'm attacking the day. And um, I know I'm, I'm now free, freestyling, but... Uh, Please. I just wanted to share that I really believe that if you can wake up every morning and drive to work feeling motivated, then then you should stay in your job. It's okay to drive home at night and be totally pissed off and frustrated and everything else, as long as the next morning you wake up again ready to attack. And so far every morning I've been ready to attack. So I hope the morning doesn't come that I drive to work wishing I was driving somewhere else, but so far so good. Do you ever completely disconnect? Yeah, definitely. I have hobbies that... No, but Allow I mean, for, for like, oh. let's say a full day where you're not checking emails. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I don't know. Ask my wife. Do you think? <laughs> Pretty well. I, I <laughs> think uh, if I said 20 days a year, I would completely disconnect, like okay. not bring my phone with me and may, maybe 20 days a year. Okay. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> yeah, when there's no connection. I try to have hobbies where I'm in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> what uh, has surprised you the most in this role? Oh, dealing with the board. It's a, a much bigger hassle than I thought. And I know this is being recorded, and I don't mind if they hear it. <laughs> I, I, love, I love our board members. They're really terrific, and I do learn a lot from them. But I underestimated how much time it would take to prepare communications mm -hmm. for them to communicate with them and to do it in a way where I was genuinely listening to their guidance. You know, it's it's easy to be a big shot and rattle off a deck, but that's not using the board. So a big part of my learning has been how to make use of our board and learn from them and, and, and take the guidance. I never realized how much time that would take in the job. When we talk about leadership style, the only thing that I've heard you say to really describe your style is servant leadership. What does that mean? So <clears throat> there's, a, there's a concept in leadership, which is servant leadership, which is really that the CEO's job or the leader's job is to help everyone else succeed. So I see my job as removing obstacles from their path helping them to get the resources they need, whether that's people or investment money or whatever, um, and taking an attitude which is about learning, about humility, and about um, coaching, and not about stern direction and, and leading by, hey, follow me, and don't worry, you'll find out later what we're doing. Like, I, I just don't, I don't believe in this day and age that that's how you motivate people. I think people want to be self-directed and they want to be empowered and they want the authority that they have to match the responsibility that they've been given. And I think when there's a mismatch in authority and responsibility, that's where you have frustration and, and um, poor morale. So I think being a servant leader is also sending a signal to say, I don't have all the answers, but I think I can help our group find the answers. 
So it, it's an admission that I'm not an expert in everything and that I genuinely need to be surrounded by people that are strong. From my time in Aldo, I remember your analogies always had to do with sports and coaching a sports team. Mm. Is that how you see your, your role a little bit? I don't know. The sport That was a one moment in time. I actually don't use the sports <laughs> analogies much anymore because I, I find them too simplistic. I, I feel like uh, the captain of a ship is, is a good one okay. because if you really get into the psychology of the captain of a ship the engineer, the navigator, there's a lot of very important people. The captain keeps on course and sets schedule, but the captain's not literally steering. The captain's not controlling the engine. So I think that's probably the better analogy. So do you see yourself today now more as an entrepreneur or as a business leader? Both, definitely both. I mean, in retail, you really wouldn't ever be able to be successful unless you were an entrepreneur. I think perhaps in manufacturing or, or um, resource type of industry, maybe you could be less of an entrepreneur. But in our industry anyway, it's so competitive, it's changing so fast that you have to be an entrepreneur. There's no way you'd survive. And what would you say are the values that are most important to you as a leader? And not what's been iterated for the company, but you personally. Humility, curiosity, firmness when required. You know, it, it's not always, we're not always trying to get to consensus. Sometimes we, I have to make a decision just so that we can move forward. And I think um, kindness, you know, just human decency, just being respectful of people and you know, like kindergarten kind of values of just be nice and be other nice people will be nice to you, you know, that's it. Um, financially, you've had a lot of success and people love to speculate about, you know, Aldo being a billion dollar business. But I think that what we can agree on is that you don't actually need to be doing this job to kind of get a paycheck at the end of the day. So what would you say is what drives you to get up at 4.30 in the morning and go to work and do this very hard job that you do every day if it's not to pay for a certain lifestyle? It, it's, it's crystal clear on my mind. I, it's for two reasons. I want to prove that I deserve the opportunities I've been given. So I'm always running from the fils du boss, you know, the son of the owner, um, kind of uh, criticism so I you think feel like I'm, it's been harder for you because of that no I think I'm past it now I think anyone who works with me knows that I'm I'm working hard and I'm doing a good job but that that is a motivation in general but my bigger motivation honestly is to give back to the people who built the company like I want to create new opportunities for people because I'm passionate about what they created for the shareholders, the shareholders being my family. Right. Um, it's true that I don't have to work, but I, I wouldn't like overstate that. I mean, I, I do want to have a good lifestyle and it is good to have the salary of, uh, of the CEO, but uh, you're right. I could move to Costa Rica and I could live pretty well for the rest of my life if I wanted to. Yeah. yeah. I think it's important to acknowledge that, that it's not, 
it is a choice you make every day to go there and do the work that you do. Yeah, but it is fun. Like it's fun building stuff. It's fun working with cool people. It's I, I just can't imagine not working. I mean, it just I don't know what you would do all day. <laughs> and like I said with the Whistler example, like <laughs> I was I was days. really happy to snowboard like two or three days a yeah. week. But come on, I mean, at some point there's like I don't know. There's more to life. I I think. Uh, we all, as I think 90% of humans want to be part of something bigger than themselves. So that's what I want to do. Okay. You, you spoke a bit about your dad, and I don't want to stay too long on this, but I do want to talk about it. Your father is now 80, um, and he continues to phase out of the business. Has working with your dad affected that father? I mean, I'm sure it has affected the father-son relationship. Did you ever have a moment where you just wanted him to be your dad and not also the business link? So, so you said he's 80 and I'll just tell everyone he, he's really like 60 or 65. I mean, it's incredible. He's so, he's so energetic. There's a lot of our staff in their thirties cannot keep up with him on a buying trip. Um, he's a total role model for work ethic and passion. So just to frame it right, you know, he, he's not a typical 80 year old, um, you know what? Outside of work, we have an amazing relationship, and he's a great dad, and we always have fun, and it's always very warm. And at work, he wants what's best for the business, and he wants me to succeed. And I know that in my heart. And so sometimes we, of course, get into, you know, arguments or, or, or disagreements. But at the end of the day, it's only because he wants the company to succeed. So I think it's just to always keep that in mind and, you know, to move forward. And, you know, he's not involved operationally anymore, but he's still very present. He okay. works a lot with our product teams and he works a lot with our design teams. So he still has the pulse of the business and he's able to guide uh, a lot of us in, in making better decisions. And he's still a good dad. He's a great dad. He's a great dad. I'm very lucky. Um, so you, you are called progressive by a lot of people around you uh, when it comes to diversity or gender equality. What does it mean to be progressive in today's business world? I really don't think I'm... You don't think you're progressive? I, I'm, I'm 49. I grew up in Canada, one of the richest countries in the world. I got a great education, like I'm sure everyone here, and the education I got was about human decency, equality, um, you know, fundamental human rights. And I just can't believe that someone would describe me as progressive. I honestly believe that what I'm doing is a normal thing for a 49-year-old CEO to do. I could understand a 69-year-old CEO grew up in a different time and perhaps the values weren't exactly the same. But even then, like, I, I really think that it's pretty obvious what we need to do to run a business these days. Um, so I, 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 you know, our, our prime minister is a self-declared feminist. I, I reject the term. I'm a humanist. I, I believe in human beings, and I don't care if they're men or women. I just don't care. So that's interesting because you're actually in a business where, I don't know what the percentage is, but if you look at all of your staff combined, you have a much... 73%. 73% women. So 
you know, you've been there for 21 years. Have you seen an evolution in the role of women in the workplace, even if you've always had the mindset of kind of human? So there's, there's some great things that have happened. I mean, there's, uh, there's always been, there have always been a lot of women that were fully qualified to be leaders at any level that you would care. But the difference in the last 15 years is that those women are taking their place. And it's amazing to me, but even to this day, when I promote a man, almost every time they'll say, what took you so long? And when I promote a woman, to this day, a lot of them still say, are you sure I can do it? <laughs> and, but less and less, less and less. And I think, I think we're 10 years away, in a Canadian context, I think we're 10 years away from women uh, saying, what took you so long? You know, and... I mean, all the time, you know, like always saying it. I think um, we're doing a better and better job as a society. I, I think there's a lot of companies that are succeeding on that front. And just think of it, just in a cold-hearted business way, if 73% of your staff aren't 73% of your leaders, it means you're underutilizing a resource. I love how you have but to just, look at it from a more no, but just, data perspective. You, leave, no, but leave aside like... You want to be progressive. You want to be this. You want to be like it. Just it's not logical. You're everyone entered. Let's assume men and women have same education. In fact, a lot of women have a better education now. But let's just assume they have the same. Why wouldn't your female leadership numbers be higher? It, it, sorry, equal to your um, to the representation of women in the workforce. So. Perhaps women make different choices at different points in their lives, and that's fine, and, and I support that as well. But I, uh, I just don't believe in quotas. I just believe in, I don't believe in, in uh, forcing numbers. I believe in creating opportunities. And then if people run through the door, then great. Hey, welcome to the room, you know, let's go. So let's get super serious. Mm. You're this really credible business guy but you do have a quirky side to you. Let's talk bunkers. What's that, bunkers? Bunkers. So I hear that if there is a nuclear war or an apocalypse, yeah. you're ready. <laughs> Tell us about this. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> all right, let's clear, let's clear this up. Does anyone know about the Spanish influenza of 1919? No? So what, does anyone know what percentage of the world's population died that year? If you saw Downton Abbey, this is the flu that killed the youngest sister. Okay. What's that? Spoiler alert. So 19, in 1919, the Spanish flu killed 3% of the world's population. Um, everyone's heard of SARS. Everyone's heard of bird flu, H1N1. So I, I'm personally worried... <laughs> I'm personally worried. I don't mind saying it, and I think more people should think about it. I'm personally worried that as antibiotics are losing their effectiveness, and as the world is becoming hyper-connected, like just think of all the direct flights from every corner of the world, that we're actually we're at risk of some kind of a bug that would spread and kill some percentage of our population. And uh, if you really read about H1N1 and go to Centers for Disease Control and serious, serious uh, academic papers, 
there's a real concern that we're not well prepared. And the idea that the government's going to protect us is crazy. Like, just look at the waiting lines on a normal day at our emergency rooms. They're just under-resourced. So I think every family, especially if you have kids, has an obligation to have three days of food and water and be and able pull to... Pull out your notepads. What do we need to buy? So you, you, should, keep, uh, you should keep enough food and water in your home that if you had to stay in your home for three days, you'd be okay. It's common sense. Anyone who lives in Florida and has to live through a hurricane, they do this naturally. If you have any friends who, you know, a lot of Italian, a lot of Italian Montrealers, their parents lived through World War II. And so they have this natural thing of keeping a lot of food in the house because they're worried, you know, what could happen. And I think we've lost that and we're all shopping at the last minute and we don't have any preparation for an ice storm, you know, like, I don't know how many of you are old enough to have lived through the ice storm, but, you know, like, my in-laws, <laughs> my wife's parents lived for 21 days without electricity in, in one of the richest countries in the world. So I don't think it's crazy to be prepared and just be responsible and provide for yourself. If everyone were to just say, no, 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 I'll be fine, well, then this our, our community, our society can't handle it, so... I'm not worried about nuclear war, for the record. <laughs> I'm not worried about zombie apocalypse. It's, I really just worry about the uh, the the virus scenario. Yeah. I'm a I'm a prepper. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you often are synonymous with racing. I do want to talk about that. Um, those who know you know that you've had this deep passion for a long time for racing. You've participated multiple times in the Dakar Rally uh, in South America. You were also, I believe, the first Canadian team to complete the race. You've done the Silkway Rally as well. And you knew from very early on that you wanted to race. And true to character, you don't do things halfway. So I found this kind of incredible quote where you said, and I guess this is part of the trip you did with uh, your wife, I rode from London to Cape Town, and then I rode from... Caracas in Venezuela to Tierra del Fuego in South America and then through Madagascar and across Italy, Greece and Turkey and by the time I was finished I'd ridden almost around the world. So this isn't like some small hobby that you do. This is massive. <laughs> uh, what does racing mean to you? Is this the way that you get to kind of put your professional life aside? And Yeah, it's, it requires so much concentration that you can't think of anything else so it's truly therapy. It's for me, it's adventure, so it's not really the speed that I like. It's the the adventure and going cross country and you know racing through sand dunes and deserts and I, I just think it's magical and uh, it makes me feel like a twelve year old kid. You know, it just makes me feel like I'm uh, discovering things for the first time and and it's also being pushed past your limits. You know, it's very hard racing. You're sleeping in a tent every night. It's uh, really hot and you're in the car for. 12, 14 hours a day. It's very tough. And um, I love the fact that we also do well because of attrition. Like only half of the cars make it. So just surviving is like a huge thing. And it makes you naturally go up the, uh, the leaderboard. And I'm proud uh, to have been the first Canadian with my co-driver. So it's a team okay. sport. And my co-driver is an amazing guy. And we uh, were the first Canadians to finish it in a car. So speaking of your co-driver, Patrick Boudy, uh, when you're in the heat of it, you say that you can be in the cockpit for 14 days, racing from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. 
you also mentioned something about 10 to 15 liters of water and you don't actually go to the washroom, so that's yeah. pretty crazy. Yeah. I would love to know, what do you guys talk about for all of those hours? <laughs> well, when we're, when we're actually being timed and we're on the race course, it's just he's basically yelling at me to tell me where to go. And I mean left or right. <laughs> um, and then when we're, not, when we're not on the actual time section, we're on what they call liaison. So you're driving on the public roads, but you're in the race car. We, uh, we talk about life. You know, uh, Pat is a guy who grew up as a machinist. So he studied to be a machinist. And we talked a lot about business and we talked about his goals. And now he's a commercial real estate broker and, and he, uh, he's running a big business. And we talked a lot about business plans and... He, he fell in love uh, and actually proposed to his, uh, she's still his fiance. I don't know why he doesn't want to get married, but so he, uh, he proposed to her at the Dakar, at the race. Wow. And so we talked a lot about kids, about, you know, about life. He's, he's just a great guy and we, we laugh a lot. So he teaches me all the Quebecois expressions and uh, we just laugh. It, he's, it's just a lot of fun. That must be a pretty special relationship. Yeah. Um, through Aldo, you guys have done a lot of work for the environment. You're obviously very conscious because the apparel and footwear industry is uh, responsible for 8% of global climate impact. So you guys have done great things. You've done eco-friendly footwear, abolishing plastic bags, being certified carbon neutral. But throughout that whole process, because this doesn't happen overnight, um, you likely had to take a close look at your own habits. And I feel like right now this is all anyone is talking about. So I would love to get your perspective as a consumer, in your opinion, where are we putting too much effort and where should we be putting more effort? Um, so I don't know how much people in the audience are aware, but uh, the, the real solution, the, re the only real solution to the carbon um, issue is a carbon tax. And the fact that none of the political parties are... Uh, putting that forward is really disappointing. Um, it's, it's really interesting that we're such a consumer society that we think the solution to climate change is through our own consumption. We think that if only we would consume an electric car or only we would consume um, a Nalgene bottle or it's like there's objects in our lives that we think make a marker that we are doing our part. But China, India, and the United States account for half of the world's uh, carbon emissions. And if Canada were absolutely perfect in its targets, it would not make a single bit of difference. So what we have to do is we have to elect a government that will rally 20 to 30 serious countries. Think of Scandinavia, think of uh, Western Europe, think of New Zealand, think of Australia. 20 to 30 serious countries that together might be 15 or 20% of the world's carbon emissions and agree on a target and become a role model that can then say, we've done it and now let's go and talk to Germany, let's go and talk to the US. But the idea that Canada on its own is going to make a difference is ridiculous and it has to be the politicians. The, the consumers, guys, drive around Montreal. There's 4 million people living in Montreal. Where are the new houses being built? 70 kilometers from the city core. Now, we're lucky in Quebec because all of our electricity is hydro. But 
when you buy in Blainville, don't talk to me about being carbon neutral. You, every single day you're commuting, you know, 80 kilometers to come come into work. So it's got to be a carbon tax and it's got to be heavy. It's got to be a, a, a complete change in the way we think of carbon. Are you hopeful? No, not right now. Not with Trudeau. Not with Shear. Any other options? We need a new leader for the Liberal Party. It's really the only realistic hope. The Greens won't ever get voted in. I don't think the NDP will get voted in. Um, but like I said, it, it, the, the best way to do it would be to go around to that group of countries that could form that coalition and agree on a, a draft and then go to the population and say, we'll only institute this tax if, ev if the other countries all join and become a block of countries that can then influence the rest of the planet. And by the way, if that block of countries made a condition to not trade with China or India or said, China and India, you need to f meet our targets, meet our, our commitment, or we're going to ratchet up the duties by 5%, 10% every year, starting in five years, give them five years, that would have unbelievable pressure. We have a lot of power as consumers when we are together, but individual consumers, you can look online, look at the data, we could all buy electric cars and it's, it doesn't make much of a difference. We need, we need to influence the big emitters. All right, so aside from the environment, if you could personally dedicate your life to a cause, what would you care to dedicate your life to? Homelessness or immigra immigrant integration, one of those two. Are you already a little bit active in that? Isabel and I are, are uh, getting involved, well, we're involved with, uh, with some uh, women's shelters and some... Um, immigrant integration services and we're just about to get more involved with homelessness. At Aldo we're very involved with mm -hmm. because of Dans la Rue. Uh, but those are two, you know, inclusion for me is, is really an important theme. Uh, if we talk about, you know, some of your learnings that you've had throughout your career, you've certainly had your ups and downs. Uh, what do you struggle with most these days? Work-life balance, you know, just yeah. finding enough time to be a good father and a good husband. And when you, you know, you were saying how many employees do you have right now? Uh, there's 14, uh, sorry, 1,500 in our offices and about 15,000 if you include all the store employees. So I'm really curious, when you have that big of a company, you obviously can't have eyes everywhere. You have to rely heavily on your people. Mm. Um how do you make it so that you're able to trust them? I'm sure you've had situations in the past where that trust was betrayed, where you were kind of disappointed because you, you can't be everywhere all the time. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about how you've lived that in the past, any issues that you've had and how you were able to overcome it. Um, there, there, I mean, there was one terrible incident that happened where uh, we had uh, some employees that were uh, caught taking kickbacks from... Uh, from um, factories and we managed to find out about it and and deal with it. I can't talk more no, about no, it, we, but we uh, it shook me up and um, it made me realize that we need to do more in terms of governance. So I think, 
you know, as a company, we needed to mature and put in some controls and some checks and balances. And we do have those now. And uh, we've also made a much bigger effort of hiring for character. So I, I think just fundamental values and making sure you have the right kind of people uh, makes a big difference. But the governance piece and having controls in place is very important. So that was a good lesson, and we haven't had any issues since. So it seems like we, we did what we needed to do. Okay. Uh, in terms of advice, what kind of advice would you give to future leaders, uh, someone going into a leadership position that you wish somebody had told you? Be careful what you wish for. It's, yeah. uh, I, think, I think earlier in our careers, we all just want to be challenged, and it comes from a very healthy place of, I, I, I want to be part of something bigger than myself. I want to be challenged. I want to have fun. Then we get into a stage in our life where we do need more money because we have kids, we have obligations, we have uh, more greed in our life. I don't know, whatever the reason. And then the money starts driving some of the career choices. And I think that can be okay for a while. But at the end of the day, you have to do a job that you enjoy. And unfortunately, I am seeing some people go for one level higher than they really would be happy at. And I think sometimes you have to work up to things and be ready for that challenge. You know, bigger responsibility is bigger stress. It's very rare that it wouldn't be. So that, that would be it. Be careful what you wish for. And for any entrepreneurs here, what steps would you encourage them to take that are general enough that it can apply to any industry to take you know, their business from something that's okay to actually getting to the next level? Prioritization. You know, there's... There's so many great ideas, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs have a tough time prioritizing and really focusing in on the one, two, or three ideas that can drive and make a difference in their company. I think uh, any, any entrepreneur that's working on six or seven ideas, you know, I, I'd be shocked if you were successful. Like, you got to do things like one at a time. I have a quote for you. You can mm. think of one before. I read something recently that was, if you have more than three priorities, you don't have any priorities. Yeah. Yeah. So you're obviously very comfortable in the position that you're in. There's a lot still left for you to do. But you're not going to stay at Aldo your whole life, are you? Well, I'll stay for quite a while. I, I love the company, and I want to see it really succeed. But will I be there in my 60s? No, I don't think so. I'll... I'll be excited to do something else. Any idea what that might be? It could be something related to Aldo. It could be um, another another business that's part of the family. Uh, it could be public service. You know, I'm really interested in, uh, I don't know, running the Red Cross or, or doing something where I could use my management experience and help uh, a charity. That would be pretty cool. You know, you look at the, all the good that Bill and Melinda Gates have done. I mean, honestly, just working for them could be really exciting. Um, I, I'd like to do something where I'm giving back. Well, thank you so much for being candid with us and thank for you. taking the time to answer those thank questions. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. for joining us for another Alcove, your favorite Nomad microconference. 
Join us next time for another intimate Alcove talk in person or right here. For more information, follow us on alcovemoments.com. Merci d'avoir été des nôtres dans cette micro-conférence nomade Alcove. Joignez-vous à nous pour la prochaine conférence. Visitez alcovemoments.com pour tous les détails.